This evening I want to talk about the middle way, which of course is um, an idea very central to, to Buddhism, to the Dharma. But something which I feel is often not really thought about very much. To begin, let's go back to the the Kachanagota Sutta, the discourse to Kachanagota, where, as we saw on the first talk I gave, how Kachanagota asks what is true vision, right view, and Gautama replies, beginning, for the most part the world is attached to um, the duality of it is or it is not. And then continues to explain or give a sense at least of what that implies, what that means. And this is how the discourse concludes, which I didn't read out last time. Everything is says the Buddha, is the first dead end. Everything is not, is the second dead end. The Tathagata reveals the Dhamma from a center that avoids both dead ends. So this starts by simply reiterating uh, the idea of um, what it is that we get stuck in. Beliefs that things really exist or beliefs that things do not exist. That duality the Buddha describes as an anta. Now, usually in English... This is translated as an extreme, uh, the middle way that avoids extremes. But that's, I don't think, a terribly good translation. The word anta is a very very, uh, common word in Pali and Sanskrit, and it, it means an end. Uh, It means a limit, a border. So actually, it's not talking about an extreme, like pushing yourself too far, but it's more to do with the image of, uh, of of getting stuck, of an end, a limit, a border. You, You are trapped, you're caught, you're stuck. And a path whether you call it a middle path or whatever, is never a condition of being stuck. A path, when it's not blocked, allows for the freedom of movement. And the middle way, um, in some ways, is simply talking about what a path really is. It's an unencumbered space. It's a space that's not... Uh, hindered or blocked by anta, 
dead ends. I think unto translates quite well as dead end. Uh, this is a the w this is the choice of the translator I. B. Horner in her translations from the 1950s and 60s. She says dead end. Remember that Mara, Mara is the personification of the demonic or the well the demonic in Buddhism and Mara is sometimes called Antaka Antaka which means the one who imposes dead ends limits Mara means death so whether we take that literally as physical death or simply as the Buddha usually uses it as a kind of inner death uh, a state of mind in which you are stuck in which you are closed in in which you're confined so the middle way is an account of a certain way of moving about in the world it's, it's, it's a movement it's not a thing and that movement we've already explored as a, a movement of inquiry, of questioning, uh, of skepticism, of doubt, great doubt perhaps as they speak of in Zen. And then it says the Tathagata reveals the Dharma from a center that avoids both dead ends. Madhyama, usually translated as middle, can also be translated as center. It's the center. And this is a center that is not caught up in dead ends. In other words, it's a moving point, we might say, a moving center. It's a centeredness, uh, a stillness, a collected quality of mind that is not impeded by let's say, fixed opinions or attachments or fears that cause it to be stuck. And it's from this central space, this unencumbered, so unimpeded space, that the Tathagata reveals the Dharma. Going back again to the word with which we started. Now, Tathagata is again another tricky term. It's generally an epithet uh, for the Buddha. When Gautama refers to himself, he says the Tathagata. I don't want to get into, a, into a, an, an analysis of this word, but my own sense is that Tathagata means something like the true person. Uh, tata gata just means here something like is and tata is like that or such the one who just is the one who is so there is a text in the Anguttara Nikaya where Gautama himself analyzes the word tatagata and it says and says that the Tathagata is the one who, 
who does what he says and says what he does. Tathagata, therefore, means this, it's, 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 the, it's the true, honest, open, non-dissimulating or deceiving or tricking mind. So I don't think Tathagata really refers just to the Buddha historically, but Tathagata really refers to our own uh, potential, our own capacity to live in a truthful way. To live in a way in which we live more transparently, more openly. Uh, we don't pretend so much to be this way or that way, to put on a mask or a, an appearance. There's another passage in the suttas that where the prime minister of a king is asked to speak to Gautama about a particular government policy, actually. And he's asked to do so because Tathagatas never lie. A Tathagata, the true person, the one who is just so, um, doesn't um, deceive. So, although this sentence is quite brief, packed into it, I think, are a lot of ideas that are actually quite hard to, uh, to really get your head around. But what it's pointing to, I feel, is that this practice is about the way in which we move through life. Um, this middle way, this course, is effectively a way of modeling or understanding how our own lives could be. That each moment, can we live in a way in which we're open and honest, in which we're not caught up in fixed opinions or attachments or fears, uh, and that we're not constantly buying into the voice that says this is what it is this is what it's not this is who I am this is whom I'm not that relaxes that compulsive binary way of thinking now curiously someone else who talked about the middle way was our friend Michel de Montaigne Now, um, the word he uses in his essays is uh, la, voie, la voie du milieu, the middle way. It's exactly how Buddhists in France today translate middle way, la voie du milieu. And that term occurs in one of Montaigne's essays, only once. Uh, remember, Montaigne had no knowledge of Buddhism whatsoever. He probably picked this idea up from his study of Greek philosophy. But being a, you know, a brilliant writer, a poet, um, he explains his understanding of the middle way in a very uh, concrete fashion. I'll read his text. Um, he says, most people get it wrong. Of course, one can proceed more easily by sticking to the side of the road. 
whose curb serves as a limit and a guide, than by following the wide and open middle way. Yes, it is far easier to proceed by artificial than by natural means, but it is far less noble too, and held in less esteem. The soul's greatness lies not so much in reaching lofty heights and making progress as in knowing and respecting its range. So for Montaigne, the middle way, the way he imagines the middle way is, is a wide and open road. And this wide and open road in following it, you can stick to the, the curb, as he says, the limits, the edge, which again is interesting. He says the word limit, anta. And again, he hasn't read any Buddhist stuff, but it's the same idea. It's the limit. It's the edge. For Montaigne, the limit, and maybe the little signposts and things that we see, are in a sense, give us a certain sense of safety. We, we can follow that. We can see it much more clearly. But being in the middle of this wide and open middle way, we are called upon to proceed by natural means rather than by artificial means. In other words, by following signs and sticking to the side of the road. It suggests to me a kind of more intuitive and spontaneous way of, as it were, making our way through life, which we don't hold on to things for safety, but we allow ourselves to be open and um, perhaps non-reactive and still responsive, kind of the kind of state of mind that hopefully we've been experiencing in these days here. Again, Montaigne suggests that the aim of these practices is not to reach some lofty heights, but rather to get a better understanding of one's own capacities and abilities, one's own range. It brings it much more down to earth, I feel, if we look at it that way. Now, the next thing I want to look at is a passage from the Chan Master Lin Chi. Uh, in Japanese, that's Rinzai. Lin Chi lived in the 9th century in China and um, has a reputation as a rather ferocious and uh, uncompromising teacher. And the image you have of the Zen master wielding a stick kind of goes back to Rinzai, to Lin Chi. And one of the most uh, well-known stories concerning Lin Chi is um, 
an occasion where he was giving a talk and addressing a, probably a community of monks and said something like, I'm quoting from memory, um, there is a true person of no rank going in and out of your senses every moment. Those who um, are listening, uh, those who are um, listening to this talk, speak, speak. In other words, well, I'm not going to say what other words might be here. Having said that, one of the monks in the audience uh, asked a question. He said, please, could you say something more about this true person of no rank? Lynchy then got off from his teaching chair, walked into the audience, grabbed the monk by the throat and said, speak, speak. And the monk hesitated. And then Lynchy pushed him aside and said, the true person of no rank, what a dried up piece of shit. <laughs> now, <coughs> Again, this language is very strong, uh, uh, it's, uh, it, but it's also very vivid and it's very confrontative. Um, this is not a polite Guy House Dharma talk sort of situation and it's certainly not the sort of thing I would ever do. But the story nonetheless, I think, um, illustrates in a probably somewhat exaggerated way. Um, the centrality of a life that li is lived from the heart, we might say, lived from the person you really are. And if you think about it, the true person of no rank, the one who is just so, the Tathagata, and then this Chinese equivalent, seem to be pointing to something very similar a condition in which you are not held back and restrained and constricted by the ideas and opinions you have about who you are, how important you are or unimportant you are, uh, where you fit into the hierarchy of things at work or in a retreat like this. And I think we all intuitively sense what he's trying to get to here. He's trying to somehow shake up his audience to, in such a way to show them what this way of living might look like. He's enacting it. He's embodying it. And the monk who says, could you please say some more about it, is a typical example, a bit of a caricature really, of a sort of intellectual, reflective, scholarly sort of person who's somehow misses the point that the Tathagata, the person of no rank, is not something to be defined and, and reflected upon, but it's actually a condition that we seek to enact, to actually try to live this way, rather than thinking about how nice it would be to live this way. Um, 
and that's a challenge. It's all very well on a retreat like this to, in a sense, get into touch with some of these dimensions of one's experience you regard as somehow more true, more honest. And this might be where you start working with some really important questions in your life, to be honest with yourself. But when we go back into the world and we find ourselves once again in, in social situations, um, although we may wish to be more forthright, to be more direct, to be more spontaneous, inspired perhaps by our retreat, it's very often that we'll become more aware of how hesitant and how how reluctant we really are in actual life situations to, uh, to exhibit that side of ourselves. Once again, I think it, it points very clearly to a way of being in the world in response to situations that are embodied and enacted rather than to think of some privileged state of mystical insight, which is essentially subjective, essentially private, uh, that we think of that as perhaps enlightenment or awakening. Whereas here it's quite clear that to be awake thing is not just about how you are inside yourself, it has to do with how you enact your thoughts, your intentions, your desires uh, in concrete human situations. And that I think is what is so refreshing about a lot of the stories in, in, in Zen, rather than texts that give us theories about the nature of the mind or something, we get these little episodes, these dialogues, these highly concretized and specific occasions in which something remarkable happens, like with Lin Chi and the monk. And this points very well, I think, to how these ideas uh, really need to find a form, an embodiment in our life with others. This notion of um, spontaneity, I think, is also very much connected with the idea of creativity. And to illustrate this, to give you another little story, I'll draw not from the Pali Suttas or from the classical Zen texts, but from a story from the early Greek philosophical con uh, tradition concerning Apelles, whose Apelles is kind of the Michelangelo or Leonardo of ancient Athens. He's the archetypal wonderful painter and um, a figure who appears in many different contexts. But one day Apelles was painting a, a, a galloping horse and he was having great difficulty in depicting the foam or the saliva 
of the horse that blew back into its mane as he, he galloped. And Apelles became so frustrated that at some point he just picked up the sponge with which he was cleaning his brushes and he threw it at the canvas and he got the effect he wanted. <laughs> the, 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 the foam flecking behind the galloping horse. And this is used in, um, in, in, uh, in philosophy as an example of someone in a state of ataraxia, untroubledness, or as uh, it was pointed out to me, which quite close to um, a Buddhist expression in the suttas. The, uh, how does it go, Bernard? Yeah, untroubled freedom of the heart. Akupa Chitto Vimuti, exactly. So the untroubled liberation of the heart. And um, Apelles was regarded as a philosopher, not just a painter. One who painted from the ataraxic state. So though he got frustrated, that somehow triggered a spontaneity within him that almost magically created the effect that he sought. Now, in many ways, I've always found that story to have a kind of Zen-like quality to it. You could, either a similar story, there's a famous story in one Zen, of one Zen monk where the monk has been working hard for years and years and years and meditation doesn't get anywhere, so he retires to a hermitage and just works in the garden. And one day when he's uh, digging the earth, his uh, spade hits a, a stone and the stone flies out, hits a bamboo, goes ping. And at that moment he understands everything. <laughs> it's a bit like Apelles' sponge. Uh, it's, so it brings together for me... Uh, both the idea of um, a certain freedom, um, a certain creativity, uh, and, and spontaneity. They're, both of these examples are celebrating very, very similar qualities, and they're explaining them, I think, in very similar ways. Whether it's ataraxia, or whether it's nibbana, uh, whether it's the free, the untroubled freedom of the mind, the unshaky, unshakable freedom of the mind, um, or the untroubledness of mind, this is not a static, passive state, some private place in which you dwell within yourself. But it is uh, an opening, a dharma door, uh, in which to respond to and engage with the world. It's not, they're not two steps, you know, get your mind sorted out, then go and do good in the world. No, it's, this, it's a single state. On the connection to creativity, um, we find a very similar idea also in the letters of John Keats. 
And Keats um, was very interested in trying to understand what was the quality that rendered the artist able to create great works. He's thinking specifically of Shakespeare. How did Shakespeare do it? How did he generate these incredible characters, dozens, hundreds of characters, in these extraordinarily vivid stories? And how did how do you do that? No one had ever done anything remotely like that before in English uh, theatrical writing. An extraordinary thing. And uh, Keats is writing uh, a letter, I think, to his brothers. And uh, he says, um, And at once it struck me what quality went to form a person of achievement, especially in literature, which Shakespeare possessed so enormously. I mean, negative capability. That is, when a Man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact or reason. Now once again, Keats knew nothing of Buddhism, he knew nothing of Zen, and yet, frankly, that's one of the better definitions of Zen I've ever come across. Uh, that's basically what we've been doing. We've been practicing being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact or reason. Perhaps the one word that rings false is irritable. Today, irritable means slightly pissed off. In Keats's uh, day, particularly in the context of his having been trained as a, as a surgeon, irritable meant um, reflexive. So a, a limb was irritable, like my knee, if you tap it and it automatically reacts. And if we understand the word in that sense, then... I feel it's uh, even more revealing. Because that's precisely what stands in the way of asking what is this and sustaining that quality of inquiry, questioning, perplexity. Is this irritable? In other words, reactive. Uh, incessant, reactive, grasping after explanations, grafting after some concept or some idea, some theory, some reason, rather than just being capable of resting in uncertainties, mysteries and doubts. So negative capability is a, a wonderful expression. It only occurs once in Keats, in this letter of Keats. Um, it's not an idea he develops elsewhere. 
But again, it is strikingly appropriate in terms of understanding Nibbana, Nirvana, uh, which is a negative, in other words, it's the absence of greed and hatred and confusion, that's the classical definition. So Nirvana is something negative, but that emptiness, that space that opens up, which is the space of the path itself, affords a new capability. The capability to, of living in the world responsively, or we might say responsibly, rather than reactively. So Nirvana is quite literally a negative capability. Uh, something is removed that then enables us to act otherwise, to behave otherwise, to live otherwise. The idea of negative capability also has resonances with the uh, Chinese Taoist uh, idea of Wu Wei. Wu Wei means non-action. Wu Wei. But this non-action is in Taoism the condition from which true action is possible. In other words, to act without acting. And once again, this notion of radical spontaneity, Wu Wei. I'm sure many of you who have read the Tao Te Ching of Lao Tzu and others will be familiar with this idea. It's a very, very central idea. Now, when Buddhism came to China from India, uh, this was about in the second century of the Common Era, um, they translated Nirvana as Wu Wei. Uh, the, this central Buddhist concept was judged best communicated in Chinese through the idea of Wu Wei, of non-action, but implying non-action as the space that is necessary for action to be free and to happen. Later they decided that, the Buddhists decided that that was too Taoist, so they changed their minds and started translating Nirvana as Nirvana, Nyeben. They tried to find simple uh, phonetic equivalents, rather than, in other words, they stopped trying to translate it at all. Interestingly also, when Buddhism first came to China, they had to translate the word Arahant. And they translated Arahant as Chen Jen, which means the true person, which I think is what Tathagata means or something very close. But again, they eventually reneged on that and did the same thing as with Nirvana. They Arahant became Lohan, the 18 Lohan, which is a famous Chinese iconographic uh, um, model. I'd like to actually conclude today's um, reflections by 
going back to an early Chinese text called the Neye, the Neye, or the Neye. It's translated in English as the inner training. It's um, a short text of about 26 uh, chapters, but chapter in some cases just 10 lines of text. It was composed in the 4th century BCE um, in an academy somewhere in northeast China. Um, it's understood to be um, a text that might, th that is probably earlier than both Xuanzi and Laozi, but for some odd historical reason, the text got lost. And it's never referred to in later literature. It got lost because it was collected into a, a, a bundle of writings, most of which had to do with um, economics and law. And for some reason, they included this um, meditation text. And um, so it was preserved, but it was forgotten. It was there, but it, no, nobody knew what it was or where it was. And it's only in the last uh, century or so that it's started to attract interest again. I feel myself that it is, um, in some ways, uh, more pertinent to understanding the that the Chinese context for the emergence of Chan, Zen, than reading the Lao Tzu or the Xuanzi. These are the classical collections of Taoist writing. The Neya is purely about inner discipline and practice. Now, the word Neya in modern Chinese means office work as opposed to working outside in the fields. But for the Taoists it meant inner, inner work. I'm going to read out uh, chapter 2 and chapter 22. Um, in many ways, instead of uh, talking of uh, Zen Buddhism, we could talk of um, a, a Buddhist Taoism. I think the Zen is so much a fusion of uh, Taoist and Buddhist ideas that in many ways it's difficult to say whether it's Taoism with a Buddhist influence or Buddhism with a Taoist influence. And particularly in some of these early uh, dialogues um, you find a language very, very similar to that of the Taoist culture. Zen's uh, love of specificity, of dialogue, is drawn very heavily from the Taoist classics. It's not Buddhist in style anymore, it's Chinese. And I find it has a great poetic power. It doesn't necessarily... Uh, serve as such a rational, logical argument, but rather a sequence of, imagery, of images that 
activate the imagination. This is um, chapter 2. This life, this life force is bright as if ascending the heavens, dark as if entering an abyss, vast as if dwelling in an ocean, lofty as if dwelling on a mountain peak. This life force cannot be halted by effort, yet can be secured by inner power. That's te, sometimes translated as virtue. Cannot be summoned by speech, yet can be welcomed by awareness. Reverently hold on to it and do not lose it. This is called developing inner power. In some ways, I think even the word dharma um, resonates a bit with this idea of life force or vital energy that the Taoists talk of. Particularly if you think of dharma as we saw as being conditioned arising. The emergence of one thing dependent upon another, dependent upon another, dependent upon another. It's a rather abstract idea, dependent arising or conditionality. But in some ways I think it's just describing the, the lawful unfolding of life itself, which we might call the life force. It's bright, dark, vast, lofty. It cannot be halted by effort. You can't force it under your will. But it can be secured, can be held, secured, held, as in the Dharma, by inner power, which we might understand as mindfulness, confidence, intelligence, and so on. Cannot be summoned by speech. In other words, you cannot pin it down in language, but it can be welcomed by awareness. You can open your heart and mind to experience it. So hold on to it, do not lose it. This is called cultivating inner strength. And when inner power develops and wisdom emerges, the myriad things will, to the very last, be grasped. Again, this sequence is one that goes through a process of inner collectedness and focus as a foundation for the emergence of wisdom, which is effectively what we find in the Buddhist tradition as well. But this is 500 years before Buddhism arrives in China. In other words, these ideas were already there. And as the Buddha said, the Dharma is personally experienced by the wise, not by the Buddhists. And I'll finish with verse 22, uh, chapter 22. 
You must align your body, unify your vision, and the heavenly harmony will arrive. Gather in your knowledge, unify your attention, and the numinous, or the spiritual, the divine, will enter its lodging place. The inner power will beautify you, and the way will reside inside you, and you will see things with the eyes of a newborn calf. I think that's a good place to end. And we're bang on time. Um, I could take a couple of questions if anyone has anything to ask. Yes. Uh, yeah, here. I have no idea. Absolutely no idea. The, um, I think it's a beautiful image and that's good enough for me. <laughs> it reminds me of, you know, in the Gospels, you know, the um, being like little children, which is, a, which is an idea you also find in other Zen texts to be like a child. A newborn calf is a creature that is, no, that is not yet conditioned by experience and knowledge and whatever cows and bulls talk about. But it's, uh, it's, an, Im it's an image of, of beautiful innocence, I find. Yes. Mm -hmm. Buddhist ideas, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's extremely unlikely. The um, Montaigne lived about, oh, he was 16th century Hume, he's 18th century, I think, Se seven, 17 something, right? Well, that's 200 years later. And at the time of Hume, um, Jesuits, particularly, had gone out to Asia with St. Francis Xavier, primarily, and um, brought back to Europe the first effectively reliable information about Buddhist teaching. And the Jesuit that Hume is possibly met, I mean there's no certainty around that, had uh, stayed in a, in a monastery where Hume met him and previous to that, shortly the year before or something, uh, it had been uh, visited by a Jesuit called Ippolito Desideri. And Desideri was um, sent by the Pope as the, Bud as the Christian missionary to Lhasa in Tibet. And he spent two years in Lhasa. 
He learned Tibetan. Um, I studied with Tibetan lamas and in fact wrote um, a refutation of Buddhism in Tibetan. <laughs> Uh, which has actually recently been published into in Italian. The, um, so Desideri was somebody who was steeped in Buddhism and very likely uh, would have communicated this to you know, the other Jesuits he would have known and Hume could well have picked up these ideas there. And the, Hume's ideas about the self being nothing but just a sort of a bundle of impressions and sensations and so on that come and go like that is quite consistent with how Desideri would have reported uh, the Tibetan Buddhist doctrine of, of, no, of no self. Very, very similar. So that's a good chance. But in Montaigne's time, uh, there had yet to be any reliable knowledge of Buddhism uh, brought back from Asia. Uh, the Dominicans had gone there in the 12th century um, but had not really, they hadn't studied the languages, they hadn't really taken the thing seriously at all. They'd just gone to promote Christianity and in any case were kicked out pretty summarily by the Mongol Khans. So Montaigne would have had no way of um, access to knowledge of Buddhism in uh, the middle of the 16th century in France. Yeah. Anta. It's interesting. It's possibly they are cognates. That is possible. Um, there are many words in our languages that are in Indo-Aryan and entirely possible. But it could be a faux ami, a false friend. Um, I've not come across that before, so I don't know. Look it up now. Look it up. Yes. Different standards. <laughs> well, again, the um, uh, I think Zen is pushing at the boundaries of what's morally acceptable, quite deliberately and self-consciously. I think Zen is rebelling against not only an, a sterile intellectual understanding of Buddhism, it's also rebelling against a sort of prurient morality. And I think these, form, these harsh forms of language um, are quite deliberate and they are designed to provoke. They are designed to upset. And, but the reason that they are being used is not to you know, harm people, it's to liberate people. So in terms of the... You know, the uh, you know the 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 reasons for which this speech is being employed is to wake people up. Now you might protest that that's not on. It's uh, nowadays we get into trouble. If I were to do that sort of thing to you, I'd get called before the 
Gaia House Ethics Committee. But <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Buddhist teacher beats up students. Um, and you, I think also we perhaps need to recognize that as a literary text, uh, this may be exaggerated for extra effect. Um, there are some accounts of what some of these Zen masters did that are really quite shocking. Cutting, cutting cats in two, for example. Yeah, sure. Yes, of course. Um, but once again, Zen is also pushing at that too. It's saying precepts can be re repressive. People can get attached to them and, and condemn others who they don't like. You know, it's uh, there. There is a kind of anarchy in in Son. You find the same anarchy in early Vajrayana in India, which is happening around the same time, actually. The Mahasiddhas, Naropa, and all these people, I mean, they're just like these Zen masters. They're rebelling against a tradition that has become stuffy, repressive, intellectually sterile, and they're trying to shake it all up. Yes, last question. Well, this is a, a question I think we all have to sit with. I mean, I understand it's a very good question, but I don't have a, a, you know, some generic answer to it. I think the important thing is to hold in mind uh, these, these different uh, imperatives, to, you know, to not be attached to fixed opinions and views. We probably all think that's a reasonably good idea. And we also think it's a reasonably good idea to make a stand and, and commit ourselves to what we really value and what we're really going to, um, you know, hold on to. How do those two things go together? Um, that, I think, is the great challenge of this practice, basically. It's, um, it's, it, it, it's how do we, as it were, find a, a greater freedom within ourselves, but at the same time, a greater courage I mean, Martin spoke of great faith, great doubt, great questioning. And again, I think that polarity is captured in the tension between faith and doubt. Uh, you know, faith is commitment and doubt is throwing everything into question. How do we bring those two things together? 
in an integrated way. And that can be your kungan, your question, for the rest of the retreat. <laughs> Thank you.